back to the Truth Perspective, everyone. I am Harrison Cayley. Joining me in the studio are Elon Martin. Hello, everyone. Corey Shank. Hello. And Manning the Computers, uh, Adam Daniels. Hey, hello. Today, we will be discussing the greatest discovery of the 21st century, and that is the reality of NPCs living amongst us, non-playable characters. This just first came to my attention in the last week or so, but apparently... The discovery was made on 4chan uh, a month or two ago. I don't know exactly. It's been a while. Um, maybe even longer. You know, sometimes great discoveries go unnoticed um, just ahead of their time. But uh, this guy on 4chan, he posted his theory that um, he, you know, he just uh, had a flash of inspiration and realized that there's probably like a limited number of souls, a finite number of souls to be distributed into the consciousness of, uh, and the experience of, of human vessels. And because the human growth rate has been like growing exponentially and, you know, we've got multiple billions of people on the planet now, maybe there aren't enough souls to go around. And maybe that accounts for what seems to be the prevalence of a certain type of individual who doesn't seem to have any individuality, any you know, ability to have a, a real inner experience and who just kind of parrots other people's opinions and doesn't seem to really have a soul. Well, uh, it's kind of tongue-in-cheek, and it was kind of tongue-in-cheek, I presume, on 4chan, but it has led to a couple interesting things. One, the great meme war of 2018 with the appearance of all these NPC memes of these gray dudes um, spouting SJW or NPC um, verbiage, which is, uh, you know, I just find it hilarious just because it's, it's really well done. Sometimes you get a meme that just uh, takes off and provides fun for the whole family, and this is one of them. But on the other hand, it's actually got people talking um, <laughs> and making some pretty good observations. Like there was one article that we had up on the site that um, kind of took a an introspective and uh, contemplative approach to it and, and asked, oh, well, you know, well, is there any reality to this? Like, you know, it's a joke, but is it, does it make sense? And he brought up a study that was published in 2008 in, um, what was it, the Journal of something and something, Consciousness and Cognition uh, by Christopher Heavey and Russell Hurlbert on the phenomena of inner experience. Because this guy writing this article just quoted a little bit from this, um, this research pointing out that the, the distribution of actual inner experiences isn't like uniform across people. Um, and there have been various theories of inner experience, you know, the experience of consciousness, what it means to be conscious, and what it, uh, you know, the types of inner experiences that people have. There have been many theories. Um, for example, um, some theorists over the past 100, 150 years have thought that 100% of the time you have an inner dialogue going, for instance. So if at any time you stop a person, um, or you stop yourself, you'd be able to detect your inner monologue, your inner speech. And others thought that, it was, that there was always feeling going on, so if you stop, you'd be able to feel an emotion. And that it's only, and that, so, so, so some people have limited conscious experience to those, for example. It's all inner speech, or it's all feeling. And these guys um, used a device, uh, like a protocol, to, to test this, got a bunch of subjects, and basically what they did was give them a beeper, 
um, that would go off at random intervals, you know, between anywhere between you know five minutes and an hour, and at various times it would beep, and then they would have to write down their experience, like what their inner experience was, the inner phenomena, and then uh, they were trained in how to do this so that they actually knew what they were doing and you know could get good results. So then they looked at the results and found that, um, <coughs> excuse me, first of all, these previous theories weren't correct. So while these while most of these people did experience inner speech, for instance, it wasn't at all times. So maybe, I think there was an average, let me see if I've got the average right here. I've got the paper in front of me. So inner speech um, came up in about 20% of the time. So in 20% of the instances where they stopped themselves to see what they what they were experiencing on the inside, um, in, in only 20% of those was their inner speech. But then again, um, in 34% of cases, there were inner seeing, so images, you know, images in, in your mind's eye. In 25% of cases, there was unsymbolized thinking. This would be like thinking a thought without thinking it in words, you know, like seeing someone um, holding something, uh, like two, two men, two workmen holding like a, a heavy metal beam and thinking, oh, it would be really bad if they dropped that and kind of like being apprehensive about it, um, but not actually thinking those words. You just look at it and you think of the situation, but it's not like you're saying to yourself, oh, it would be really bad if those guys dropped that thing and, you know, one of them got caught up underneath it or something like that. It's an unsymbolized thought. It doesn't actually present itself in your mind as words. <coughs> and then 20% um, of those experiences included feelings, so like basic feelings like joy, happiness, sadness, anxiety, things like that. And 16% um, were contained uh, sensory awareness. So like a vivid... Um, perception of just a sensory phenomenon, whether it's like the, the coldness on your skin or like really attending to like the red color of a Coke can or something like that. So not just, oh, there's a Coke can, I'm going to get it to drink it. No, it's actually when you're aware of looking at the color, you know, as a color or experiencing a physical sensation as a physical sensation. So none of these came up in 100% of cases, but what they found was that there was vast, there were vast differences in the the number of different, um, of these five different inner phenomena, um, there were differences between these individuals. Some people have had on average fewer experiences and some had more experiences. So with um, sensory awareness, for instance, there were nine people out of 30 who didn't report any, uh, any experience of sensory awareness. And there was one person, one subject in this, in this experiment who had sensory experience or sensory awareness in all of his or her um, experiences. So in every instant, they remembered being like viscerally sensory, sensorily aware of something. And it, there were similar results for all five of these. So five people didn't experience any inner speech at any point uh, for, the, for the experiment. Four people didn't experience any inner seeing. Eight people didn't experience any unsymbolized thinking and five people didn't experience any interior feelings. And uh, on the other hand, there were like the, the people with lots of inner experience. So there was one person who experienced 75% or experienced inner speech in 75% of their um, you know, times where they introspected. One person experienced inner seeing or images 90% of the time. One person experienced unsymbolized thinking 80% of the time, 80, sorry and one person experienced feeling 90% of the time. So a vast difference between individuals. 
what they didn't get into in this study, which is uh, which was a misleading bit in this article that we have on SOT um, about the NPC meme. This guy in this article had said one-third of the subjects didn't experience any of the five inner phenomena, but that wasn't true. They actually didn't study that in this article. Um, so they didn't do any research, or they didn't, they didn't analyze the data in that way, so they don't actually give a number of people who didn't experience anything. So presumably, you know, one of those nine people that didn't have any um, um, sensor, sens sensory awareness, if they didn't have any sensory awareness, it's at least possible that they had, like, inner speech, for instance. We just don't know. Um, I emailed one of the researchers to find out, and he hasn't gotten back to me yet, so hopefully he will, and we can give an update at some point. Uh, we Where just, did we, we just had to, um, switch the mic cause we were using the wrong one. So sorry about that people. <laughs> um, where was I? Um, I was talking about, yeah, that this study didn't, um, didn't look at if there were any individuals that didn't have any inner experience whatsoever. Um, they didn't point that out. So I doubt it was the case, but at least it was the case that, um, there are vast differences between individuals. So some people have very little self or very little inner experience and some have a lot. And it's not equally distributed among people. So the person that writing this NPC article brought that up as a point that, well, you know, actually this meme seems to be kind of accurate that there are people that seem to live like uh, lives that like that are basically like shells of existence where there's not really a lot going on and any behaviors and thoughts that they do have would just be kind of um, aping opinions and actions and beliefs that they've gotten from society. So it seems to be an actual phenomenon. And, you know, the, the shoe kind of fits when you look at SJWs, how um, they do seem to follow a script, right? And, and you see it on Twitter, of course. I mean, Twitter's designed to do this kind of thing where with hashtags where people will say the exact same thing and they'll respond with exactly the same talking points and comebacks, and they don't seem to be able to think for themselves because they are just following a script. And it's a script that's adopted by, you know, a lot of, a lot of people. And arguably, that's the way, like, societies work to a large degree. So it's not just limited to SJWs. I mean, that it's a, it's mob phenomena, and you can find it anywhere. You can find it on the far right, too. Mm -hmm. um, but with the disclaimer that the far right isn't what the... NPCs say the far right is because, as uh, Paul Joseph Watson put it uh, this week, um, you know the SJWs or the NPCs think that anyone right of Joseph Stalin is far far right, <laughs> essentially. So, which is just ridiculous. But the the reason this uh, we're tying this into today's show is because we're going to be discussing um, some more of. Casimir Dabrowski's positive or theory of positive disintegration, and asking the question is that uh, the question is it possible that uh, TPD or the theory of positive dis disintegration is it um, or can it or is it like a psychology? Well, how, no, I'll phrase that differently. Can it account for the psychology of like NPCs? The, the this idea of a person without very much inner awareness who is kind of only adopts the opinions of those around them and seems to be just part of a hive mind with no real individuality. And it's kind of a leading question that I'm asking myself because I think the answer is kind of yes. <laughs> and that's why we're going to be that's why we're going to be talking about it today because one of the 
controversial aspects of Dabrowski's psychology is that he, he says that, um, well, he uses various term, various different terms, and he uses some common terms in different ways than they're, or, than they're ordinarily understood. So, for example, he talks about personality, but he says that not everyone has a personality. In fact, a personality is a rare thing to have. It is an accomplishment that only very few people accomplish in their lives. So he doesn't use personality in the way that um, you know modern psychologists use the word personality, because the way modern psychologists use the word is to just describe um, like traits, personality traits. So everyone has a personality because everyone has personality traits, and the the most um, you know rigorous and scientifically validated um, method of measuring personality that we know of so far is the Big Five. So if you're a fan of Jordan Peterson. Or if you've just heard him, um, then you'll know about the Big Five and the the traits that everyone has, like um, normally distributed throughout the population. So, um, in contrast to that, you know, like I said, Dabrowski says only a few people would have a, a fully developed personality, and uh, you know, a greater a greater percentage would have a personality that they are in the process of developing, and then probably. I don't know, maybe 60% of the population has no personality whatsoever. And uh, a large number of those, if not all of them, um, you know, it's impossible to know the statistics because the research just hasn't been done. Dabrowski would argue might not have any possibility of developing a personality. And he gives various reasons for that um, because he gives various traits or um, kind of um, traits and abilities to a degree, but like um, aspects of a person's psychology that make the development of a personality po possible. And um, we can get into a few of those maybe. It's a kind of a vast subject, so we won't even, we'll barely scratch the surface today. I know, we, you know we've talked about it, the theory, multiple times in the past, but never really gotten in, into it in detail. So this will be kind of a first foray into trying to do just that. And looking at the um, the levels that might apply to kind of the what we're going to look at today, because Dabrowski's theory is uh, a theory of levels. He'd say that there are different levels of um, of human psychology, and that personality is like the top level. It's like the most. It's the the achievement of you know all that a person can achieve. Basically, to to use. Peterson's terminology, that would be like a person who has fully developed their potential. So, you know, Peterson always talks about potential being a real thing, even though it's not real, you can't touch it, but everyone ha has a potential. And when you look at someone, you say, oh, well, you, you know, that you're not living up to your potential. That means something, even if we don't know exactly what it is, and even if we can't touch it, we still understand what it means, that there's a potential out there, there's a potential you, a potential future for you, a, a potential future you, that you can develop into, that you can grow into, or that can um, that you can manifest within yourself so that you become it, um, but some people either don't reach it, or Dabrowski might argue some people can't reach it because they have a very limited potential, and that ha would have to do with like hereditary features, um, you know, personality traits you know, in the modern sense that may um, inhibit the development of personality, and those people, uh, you know, might have something in common with the NPC memes, <laughs> which is. Kind of a a funny way of, and you know, a slightly insulting way of um, 
making just an observation about human nature. So with that said, uh, what do you guys think? Well, one thing, uh, just touching on the whole NPC meme, it's uh, like we, you know, a lot of people could be called robotic, you know, a lot of people act robotically, I know, that, you know, just in our daily lives, we have habits, and we can often respond to things automatically. But there's something about the NPC meme that captures the maliciousness of, and the malevolence of this, uh, this kind of SJW horde mob mentality. Um, where you know they they cry diversity is strength, yet they all have the exact same ideas, the exact same thoughts, and are willing to persecute anyone, you know, to shut down anyone and to dehumanize anyone who doesn't agree with them. And they do it robotically while thinking that they are you know social justice warriors and saviors, and that there's something positive actually in, in, instead of negative about what they're doing. And I just wanted to touch on that and then talk a little bit about Dabrowski's history, because he was born in Poland in the 1902, and, you know, the, he was coming of age when, the, you know, the Nazis were, uh, were rolling across Europe. And it was, you know, after he had earned his degree in experimental psychology and his, uh, he earned his medical, uh, he became a doctor, uh, that he was... I mean, he must have witnessed, I don't know if he was working in Poland at the time, but in 1939, uh, the Nazis went into Poland and just wiped out the psychiatric profession and tried to destroy the entire culture, tried to destroy everything about the country. And so for this, for this man uh, to witness this, you know, you know while he was a, a young adult, it must have greatly influenced him as to the power and the roboticness of these, you know, what we would today in 2018, people are calling NPCs, but he was calling, um, I, I think that it was people who were pri pri or what was it, primitively integrated? Yeah, primary. Primary so. integration, because he was trying to explain why most people uh, were just rote, reflexive, didn't have a lot of depth, just responded ro uh, robotically to suggestions. And, you know, and how can you create a psychology that can encompass that as well as people who, you know, like, the, you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and others who would risk their lives for the highest values against this, you know, this war machine. And so it's, it's really interesting that this idea surfaces during times like this when you see kind of an invasion of the body snatchers taking place where you see this, this mass lie kind of taking hold in, in people and, and they seem to lose their willpower, their intellect. But like you said, Harrison, uh, Dabrowski would say that a lot of these people probably didn't have the capacity for it to begin with, mm -hmm. and they were more vulnerable to this kind of propaganda and hysteria, um, but that there are, there's an actual pathway that he outlines in his uh, plan, his uh, theory of positive disintegration for people who do have the ability to, um, to rise above these lower levels uh, that are just primarily integrated on on either your heredity, your instincts, or your social norms, you know, that's uh, that basically the fundamental thing about this primary integration, or what Dabrowski would call the unilevel uh, stage, the very bottom stage of, of personality development, is there's no internal conflict. Mm -hmm. You don't feel, you know, ash you know, necessarily ashamed about things that you think, um, that could be wrong or things that you do that could be, you know, objectively wrong. Or, but as long as you don't get punished for it or as long as it doesn't feel bad, you don't, you don't necessarily, there's no conflict there in order to uh, spur you to examine yourself. Well, like that, that seems to be the crux of the matter. 
in primary integration, there is uh, little capacity or an impetus to reflect upon oneself. There's a, a kind of a uh, automatic rote um, imperative to avoid uh, inner conflict, uh, feelings of conscience, uh, guilt, uh, morality towards things. So it, it, you know, it's the the very kind of basic. Um, I, I think uh, in in Gnosis uh, by Boris Mor- Moraviev, uh, he has a term for it. If if y'all remember what it is, um, maybe it'll come to me in a few minutes. But it's just a, a kind of a a very uh, rudimentary form of human being that that is not human in a way uh, that's two dimensional. The organic portal. Uh, it's not that. Um, it'll probably come to me at some point. Um, but what I really appreciate, especially in in his uh, second description, in the second level that comes out of primary integration, um, the second level implies uh, quite a bit of struggle, uh, inner conflict, inner conversation, um, uh, even what he would call psychoneurosis or or the the uh, the experience of of feeling neurotic, of feeling anxiety, of feeling fear um, in response to conflict with oneself, with one's uh, objective seeing of one's own personality and how it may be at odds with uh, the relationship one has with with others that are important in one's life or or one's um, one's coworkers. Uh, just to give a couple of examples. So something that he, uh, something that I think he's really brought to the conversation in a big way is to say, you know, these, these experiences, which might otherwise be considered mental, mental illnesses and, and require treatment, uh, can be viewed in a different way. They can be viewed as part of a process, uh, a part of a, a disintegrative um, process that breaks down the old structures that somebody has been on track with for a while and makes space for new structures uh, in one's being, in one's thinking, uh, in one's emotional life. And uh, a a big thing that he mentions in this context is how important the emotions are the guiding of the emotions, the experience of the emotions, what one does with one's emotions, um, plays in one's own personal development. Right, and at the core of that, you have suffering, um, which clearly is not something that the NPCs are particularly good at at handling any any uh, any amount of. But it's yes, like you said, uh, there's the there's the one level, the unilevel is at the bottom. And so, in in that level, we are uh, we're governed by what Dabrowski calls the two two factors, two primary factors. And I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but one is genetic or heredity and the instincts, that kind of thing. And then the second factor is the social norms. And I can see how this you know this SJW culture that we have, these kids um, that they're raised and they have uh, in this culture and the social 
environment where suffering is seen as pathological, primarily as pathological. You, you, know, you take drugs, you take antidepressants, you take whatever you can in order to avoid suffering, or you, you, know, you become addicted to your, your iPhone or you know, your technology, but you avoid suffering because that is bad. You know, suffering in, in general you know, is, is a bad thing. But I think that what we can do uh, is distinguish between two different types of suffering. You know, one that we could call possibly like intentional or conscious suffering, which is what I see uh, uh, Dabrowski writing about in these in this in his books. He's talking about uh, conscious suffering, about how you are not living up to your potential. You know, that, and you can you can hear that in so many of Jordan Peterson's. Uh, speeches that you know when he speaks to somebody, you know, it's that, that that's that fatherly figure saying, "You are not reaching your potential, young man or woman. Get your act together, you know, and go out and work." And so this is, um, you know, you you experience this kind of conscious suffering, but we don't really have, uh, I guess, a really good way of, of verbalizing that. We don't, we don't have a culture that distinguishes between this conscious suffering and then kind of useless suffering, you know, mm -hmm. just pain, just the suffering of, of, of you know, stupidity, of this, the stupid things of life, the diseases and all these things that we want to, we legitimately want to eradicate, the suffering caused by, um, you know, viruses, plague, by, you know, any sorts of handicap or any, any of those things. But then, you know, in positive disintegration, in the theory itself, he's talking about a higher form of suffering and about utilizing um, emotions of shame and guilt uh, in order to, you know, evaluate yourself based upon ideals that you consciously are seeking after, that you you don't, you know, they're not really necessarily handed down to us. It's, at least in this day and age, there's not a lot of personality ideals. I I think that people are exposed to that will automatically just kind of evoke a desire to be like that person, or at least not in a in a healthy, necessarily healthy way. I mean, you know, we have action heroes, we have. Uh, pop stars, we have all of these other kinds of ideals, but um, in times like this, it seems like you really have to, you have to go searching for uh, for a, a really uh, strong and attractive ideal that can that can motivate you in order to, you know, kind of lift yourself up. And then, you know, that's where people like Jordan Peterson and others in our lives play such a, such a big role. Uh, but, you know, that's even... Uh, that's a step above, you know, that's, that's still in that, that bottom level. You know, if you, once you start experiencing those emotions and everything, and you, you're trying to seek to find your ideal, to live up to your ideals, it's, um, you know, the message is there's still a long, long way to go. Mm -hmm. That's a long, it's a long struggle. And so I think that, you know, for most of us, just understanding that this basic bottom level is probably, you know, enough to at least give people a compass, you know, because mm -hmm. so many people are missing a compass in order to know which way to go or, or how, how to move forward. You know, it's, that's such a big thing that, no, that people don't get because of, you know, this NPC culture that we have, this nonsense culture that's just all platitudes that you cannot use practically on a day-by-day -day basis um, in order to, to put yourself on, a, on a, any sort of productive path. You know, and it's almost, it's just... It's like automatically guiding you towards a victim, victim mentality, victimhood mm -hmm. way of viewing the world, which is, as we see now, it, the end result of that is self-implosion. And it's, you know, that's, I think, um, uh, Dabrowski, he 
differentiates between at least three different types of disintegration. Um, I believe there was the unilevel disintegration, then there's the multi-level disintegration, um, which I'm not sure we'll necessarily get too much into that, but we'll probably touch on that in the show. And then there's pathological disintegration, um, and that can be due to, uh, you know, actually like somatic uh, health illnesses or, you know, issues that you have that are outside of your control. Or, you know, like I think what we're seeing it now is this hysterical kind of negative pathological disintegration that's taking place um, by, uh, you know, a lot of people who just w have no... Maybe they don't have developmental potential. Um, you know, maybe a lot of them just don't have that potential, and they're just kind of swept away with the with the waves of you know the the craziness of our times. Um, but you know, I think uh, you know Dabrowski does talk about specifically what developmental potential looks like. Um, and I don't know if we want to get into that. Or Harrison, do you have any ideas or any thoughts on well developmental uh, potentials? Well, I think we'll set that aside for the moment and and stick to the, like the lack of developmental potential okay. that developmental potential for now um we'll see if we get into it a bit later but i wanted to comment on a couple things that you just said there one on the the bit about suffering and i think one way of looking at it is that um dabrowski would say that at a low level people experience suffering primarily in well they uh they experience conflict primarily in relation to the external world so this would be conflicts that they have with other people and that people at a higher level experience conflict primarily within themselves and to a lesser degree between people so the conflict is kind of internalized and there is rather than a, like a fight with another person there's a fight with other aspects of yourself this is the thing that peterson tries to get people to do to to take the fight inwards to change themselves as opposed to changing others because when people um, are in conflict with the external world the solution to that suffering is to eliminate the problem and the problem is the external world so the this is what you see in uh, with, with SJWs where they see a problem someone insults them they're in conflict with someone else and the solution the like the only possible solution is to get rid of the problem to punch the Nazi or to insult mm -hmm. the person they're they're talking to and to say that they're the problem and essentially you, you it gets to the point where when these people are really being honest with themselves, and I've seen tweets like this from people like this, where they'll say, essentially, well, these people are so bad, you know, like w white rapist males are so bad that it would be great if we had a gulag system that would just kill them all because at least their deaths would 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 uh, result in a better world without rapists, for instance. So they would, like, positively advocate for a system of like mass torture and murder in order to make the world a better place and that's exactly what the nazis and the communists did which is kind of ironic is because they can't see that the the solution that they're proposing is actually the thing that creates the the greatest horrors on the planet so they kind of project that conflict and pr will project the the solution to suffering to you know eliminating the, the problem in the external world as opposed to identifying the source of the of the inner conflict and changing yourself to make yourself a better person which then has a, the like the butterfly effect of rippling out to the people around you and the through your own actions actually creating a better world without gulags and uh, the second thing was in relation to <clears throat> the first two factors that you talked about I want to read a couple paragraphs from the introduction by Bill Tillier to the republication of Dabrowski's first English book, Positive Disintegration. 
And this is on the two types of personality integration. So I'm just going to read a couple paragraphs. Dabrowski used a conventional approach to integration. Integration reflects a deep unification, organization, and coordination of mental functions. A key characteristic of integration is the lack of internal psychological conflicts. The, ind the individual is in internal harmony with his or her feelings and behavior, a harmony traditionally associated with normality and mental health. Dabrowski outlined two types of personality integration, a lower primary integration, reflecting a socially integrated personality, and the other representing a higher secondary integration, a self-constructed autonomous integration. The basic belief and value systems that are reflected in these two integrations, and more importantly, the source of these beliefs and values, differentiate these integrations. So the first one, primary integration, the socially integrated personality. A long tradition in philosophy has described the socially integrated pers personality, perhaps beginning with Plato's allegory of the cave, where so-called prisoners sit passively watching an illusion of life unfold in front of them. The socialized, average individual adopts his or her beliefs and values essentially ready-made from their social environment, from their parents, peer group, and schooling, what Dabrowski called second-factor influences. The process of socialization is generally seen to effectively squelch individuality and autonomy. People are molded towards homogeneity, all marching to the same drum. Few internal psychological conflicts are seen at this level. The vast majority of conflicts are generated by clashes with the external environment. Primary integration also includes the, the antisocial individual who is guided by primitive instincts, ego, selfishness, selfishness, and hedonism, what Dabrowski called first-factor influences. These individuals often cannot control their behavior and frequently run afoul of the law, but many also find their way into business or politics, where they tend to excel. So that's the first level. That's the primary integration. And, you know, right there you see the description of all kinds of like social movements, right? And just and social groups, right? Where the they have their beliefs provided for them ready-made, which they adopt ready-made with no modification or um, you know, differentiation on the, the individual's behalf. It's just they become carbon copies of everyone else. That's why the NPC meme is so effective and why uh, I think people are why the why its targets are so vehemently um, triggered by it is because it's true, because this is pointing out like a severe flaw in people like these personalities that they don't have any individuality that they have adopted this like socially mandated uh, template of behavior and speech and values and and just everything and they've just adopted it wholesale and they you know they actually think that they're great people because of it. When, actual, when in actuality, they have no individuality, they haven't come to any of these um, values on their own, they haven't made them their own in, a, you know, in an authentic way, they've just adopted them. And what you get in this situation is this, this, um, this kind of alliance between these kind of two types of individual, individuals that Tillier just uh, like expounded on here, where you have the, the people primarily... Um, driven by social forces, and that would just be like, like he says, the average person. So, um, uh, you know, probably like 50% of the population, <clears throat> at least, who just go along with the crowd. And then you get, uh, well, and that's potentially. So, <clears throat> I'd say like, you know, at least 50% of the population potentially will go along with any given, like, social system. So, I'm not saying that like 50% of the population are SJWs, just that potentially 50% or at least 50% could be. You know, given the right conditions, 
And um, but they're in an alliance and that they don't even realize exists with the people who are primarily driven by the first factor. And th those would be like the psychopaths and people with personality disorders. This is another observation that Peterson makes when he's talking about like the crowds, the, the, the mobs that uh, protest his speeches, where it'll be a lot of just, you know, naive, dumb kids who have like, who are just like ad adopted this NPC persona where they just repeat the, the slogans and um, repeat the emotions to, to, to go back to our discussion of social contagion. They just adopt all of these kind of socially transmitted emotions, beliefs, and emotion, or I said emotions twice, emotions, beliefs, and actions, behaviors. And that, but then within that group, there's a smaller group that are just out to cause trouble. And so he's, you know, he says, that, you know, he gave the example of the the talk he gave in Canada, I think, where there was the, you know, the there was the the woman like smashing a rock on the stained glass outside of the like the chapel where he, he was speaking or something, and he said that you know there and at multiple other ones there were one or two individuals that he could just see were like psychopaths. They were just out there. They were just part of this crowd because they could cause trouble. And the thing is, is that the the rest of the SJWs don't even see it. They're just one of the crowd, right? They're just one one more. Um, one more SJW, part of the you know, part of the resistance. There's no um, no discerning, no, no discernment, no differentiating between the people within one's group, and that really qu requires some insight. Primarily, it requires some self insight because you can't know other people if you don't know yourself, and um, and that's the recipe for disaster when you have this mix of um, people who are just totally controlled by uh, social contagion. And then you've got these little catalysts mixed in am among them who can move them in some very scary directions. This is essentially what causes revolutions, and it's why revolutions become so violent and, uh, and cause so much destruction. Um, it's, this, it's this combination of people really driven by the, like the lowest like biological drives for power domination, um, you know, um, physical domination, Violence um, and the and the people who just go along with the crowd and then will adopt those beliefs and those behaviors and those emotions as the the, the mob progresses and evolves in a sense and uh, you know gains more influence. So that's why it's like a scary phenomenon. And again, it's why the NPC meme is so effective and so uh, and it has such a triggering effect is because it's revealing something about. These people that is not flattering, but it's something that every person, if they have some self-awareness, realizes about themselves. Mm -hmm. That's the ironic thing, is that if, if all these NPCs were to realize, wow, I really am an NPC, they might actually learn something and become an individual. Because every individual realizes how much of an NPC they can be, that they have been, and that they currently are. You realize how much, like how many of your beliefs you don't actually like believe. You've just adopted them because they, you know, because you, you want to look good, or you know, you think it's a great idea. Oh, a smart, a smart person said that, so I'm going to think that too, and that'll make me smart. Well, no, it doesn't. And you know, maybe you can make those ideas your own if you actually think about them and you know, apply them to your own experience and um, and develop them for your for yourself. Like, make them your own. Don't just repeat someone else's language. Put it in your own language to see if it makes sense to you, and modify it so that it does make sense to you. Otherwise, you're just being an inauthentic, you know, NPC, essentially. So, um, really, there's nothing to the, 
the kind of paradox is that it's very insulting to be called an uh, an NPC. You know, as all the NPCs are saying, it's dehumanizing. This is a dehumanizing language. It's so bad that uh, that the uh, you know these four channers are dehumanizing us by calling us NPCs, when really it's by kind of dehumanizing yourself by realizing how NPC like you are that you can actually become human. And that's the problem is that these people, um, well, most people, everyone thinks that they're this fully developed human. Like Peterson says. Um, you know, if you're look if you're looking at yourself and you think that, uh, well, I'll rephrase that. If you have a kid, um, what are you going? Are you going to tell your kid that they're great the way they are? Are you going to tell teenagers and like kids in their early twenties that they are great the way they are? They're perfect the way they are. No, it's like they're you know little pieces of crap that need to grow up and actually learn something and become a person. First of all, because they're they're nothing. They're they they haven't developed themselves at all. They're just a kid. They don't know anything. And really, I mean that. That's common sense. It makes sense. It's like you have to grow up. You have to get some experience under your belt to actually become someone. So it, it's and it, there's kids have so much potential, right? At least presumably some kids do. And it, by telling a kid that they are perfect the way they are, you where is there to go from there? there nowhere. It's like you can't develop your potential if you believe you've already fulfilled your, your potential. So if you think that you're this fully developed human with a fully developed you know value set. Um, which primarily comprises of being anti-racist, anti-you know transgender, and and you know anti-sexist, and all these isms and ists that uh, typify SJW the SJW mindset. Um, if you like, um, if that's all you've got, then you have nowhere to go, and um, and you are just an NPC, you know. But you can be so much more if you just realize that about yourself. So you shouldn't be insulted. You should be like, oh, okay, yep, got a point. I got something to work on, you know. Maybe I can, and you can even like tell yourself a little like lie to get you started. Oh, well, maybe I'll, I'll end up, you know, still believing and having all the same values if I, if I go along with this process of rigorous, you know, self-analysis and, and, and uh, you know, inner conflict. Well, okay, yeah, you can tell yourself that. But uh, it might not turn out that way, right? So maybe you'll turn, you'll you'll really become an authentic SJW, and you know, great for you if that's the case. But you might actually learn something and be like, okay, well, you know, I thought this, but I was kind of wrong about that. I was kind of like overgeneralizing here and there, and I can see my motivations. Like, oh, I, I actually had a good motivation here, but you know, that doesn't really count for much because look at what happened, and look at all this other stuff I was ignoring. But at least I can hold on to that kernel and develop something out of it, right? Because I think most. Most values that get passed along have a kernel of something in them. Like, I mean, just look at like sexism, racism, you know, trans transphobism, like all, all these isms. I mean, there's something there, right? Because it, it, like, racist people are assholes. I mean, they're not fun to be around. You know, if you've ever met a real racist, it's, it's yeah. someone you want to punch in the face. Like, you, yeah. I, so I can understand the the concept. I can understand the impulse to punch a Nazi, but it's not that simple. And and that's you know that impulse is actually something that that you that one should struggle with because well it's one of the reasons that we've developed a like a justice system is because the impulse for immediate revenge and um and like the immediate um like uh relieving of the inner tension that comes when you encounter someone that really um like gets under your skin that's what causes innocent people to go to jail it's what causes innocent people to get murdered it's, it's what causes like uh um, like feuds that go on for generations between families and tribes. It's like that's the 
even if there's a, a, a rational reason behind these impulses, when, when left unchecked and, and just let, like, when, when left uninhibited, they actually can produce great evils. So that's why it, may, it is it also rational, even more rational, to question yourself and to, to realize the impulse within you and to, to question it and say, okay, well, is that really a good thing to do? Maybe it would be better if I, um, if I leave uh, vengeance to a group of my peers to determine and carry out because I might get carried away. You know, that shows that you have some, uh, some ability to distance yourself from your own emotions while fully acknowledging them. But to have some, like that little voice on your shoulder saying, oh, maybe that's a bad idea. Like, maybe you should get some advice on that. Maybe you should, this is a problem that you shouldn't be handling. That's why, um, it reminds me of another thing that, another anecdote that uh, Peterson told about like this one politician that he was saying just really flubbed, a, you know, an opportunity to actually make <clears throat> a good point which was, I think it was something um, something like this. This wasn't the exact scenario, but uh, someone basically asked this politician, oh, well, what would, have, what, what would you feel if like, your daughter was raped or something? Like, what would you do? And he said, oh, well, you know, I'd just uh, let the justice system handle it. And Peterson's like, no, that, like, that, that's the dumbest answer. You say, you tell the truth. It's like, no, I'd want to kill that person. But I know that that would be a you know, really irresponsible thing to do. I might make a mistake. You know, I, I might lose control. So that's why it makes sense to leave it to the justice system because of all these other reasons. But you acknowledge that, yeah, when something like that happens, you really do want to you know, engage in some vicious uh, physical violence. Like that, that's normal. People have that within them. But there's that distance within the person, right? So this politician was just giving the, you know, a slimy answer because he knew that was the answer he should have given, but really didn't have any authenticity to be able to, to, to appear as an actual human. So this politician was acting like an NPC, you know, just giving the rote response that, uh, that, he, that he believed was expected of him when really like an authentic person is aware of their own emotions, can think about their own emotions, can, um, can analyze them, look at them from different perspectives, and then make a decision that isn't fully determined by those emotions, because when you're making a de when when there's a total um, like a, how how would you put it when your actions and your emotions and your thoughts are all like tied together, that's what uh, Tillier was saying. That's an integration. When there's a total harmony between all of those things, well, there's no distance for there's no distance within them for questioning for like working out alternative possibilities. It's just one whole right um, emotion action. And that's a, well, what do we call people like that? Well, we call them impulsive. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's why we medicate so many, you know, young boys and uh, a lesser number of young girls for being ADHD because they have no distance between their thoughts and their feelings and their actions. They don't, they don't have the ability to delay gratification. It's like these are all things that actually make us human. And, um, and th that it's what makes us, it's what can potentially make us, you know, um, as human as possible. Because a lot of, you know, well, none of us are, you know, as f none of us have reached our full potential. And that's the, that's kind of you know, one aspect of, of positive disintegration is to, to see humanity, see the differences within humanity, and then to apply that really to oneself in the pursuit of fulfilling that potential. And, and Dabrowski called that the personality ideal. And the further, the further up you go, the more clear your ideal is to you, and the, the more you manifest that ideal. And then to get to secondary integration, which I didn't read, um, I don't think I'll read it, but I'll just give a, 
a short description, secondary integration will be where there is no more, there is no more inner conflict because you are already manifesting your potential to the fullest degree that you're able to. So why would there be any conflict if in every given situation you know what to do and you are fully aware of why you're doing it and know that it's right and, th and then you do it? This would be like, this is such a, a rare phenomenon that you know you can probably only count the, the number of public individuals that achieve this you know, on one or two hands because it is that rare. But that's at least the theory. Right, that's the direction that people want to go. I was just thinking, you know, what, as I was reviewing uh, some of this material for today, um, I was taking something of an inventory within myself and thinking, okay, this is uh, this is primary integration behavior. Uh, when that happened, uh, th this was kind of approaching a, a secondary integration, um, and some of it's some of it's rather uncomfortable and even painful, um, but. There is a framework here from which to uh, reflect on and use as a tool um, that is, you know, separate from it being any kind of uh, interesting psychological academic material. Uh, this is really practical stuff, uh, especially if you if you have experienced any of these um, periods in in your life that have uh, that have caused deep doubt or have caused uh, what in fourth way teaching might be considered a bankruptcy um, or, a, or a kind of uh, deep uh, night of the soul, dark night of the soul questioning of, of who you are and, and, and what you know and what you are aligned with. Um, so in that regard, this, was, uh, this is material that I think is, um, <laughs> you, you have to really be patient with it in a sense because you you can't decide that you're you know it, it would be um, I think antithetical to the whole uh, approach to this to to decide that because you've once manifested something that that resembled uh, you know some kind of higher order of being uh, that that you're there uh, so I guess what I'm trying to say is that um, real reflection and seeing uh, the inner uh, NPC or or um, or primary integrative uh, being that's inside of you requires a lot of humility, um, but it's also a place from which uh, you know you're you're in a position to grow, because if you if you think that you're someplace that you're not that you're uh, then you're not being objective in the least about it, so. Um, Engaging in the process of, of seeing those worst parts of yourself, those worst things that you've done, those things that you're not proud of, uh, the, you know, the selfishness, the, uh, the, the political correctness, um, the ideologies that have been kind of, that are still sort of trying to uh, say something every so often that, uh, you know, without any self-reflection, it, it's not really being worked on at all. So it's work, uh, but I'd say it's re it's a really interesting and valuable framework from which to uh, to look at one's own um, development. And uh, speaking of which, Dabrowski, you know, he he speaks of secondary influences um, in in the growth of uh, individuals, and he talks about. 
education as it exists in the U.S. Uh, so I'm just going to read a little bit from a chapter from Dabrowski's Theory of Positive D Disintegration, which was edited by uh, Sal Mendaglio. Uh, and this chapter is called Dabrowski on Authentic Education. And he, he writes, expressed in terms of Dabrowski's theory, two common characteristics of the American lifestyle are unilevelness and feebleness of the higher hierarchization of values. Such attitudes, while expressed by adults and fostered by the American educational system, the school becomes a center for indoctrination of these attitudes and even attempts to prevent transgression of these attitudes. For Dabrowski, the American hierarchy of economic and financial values, combined with a relatively narrow appreciation for other ways of life, tends to diminish the sympathy of other societies toward America. For the unilevel American, it is impossible to understand the meaning or value of internal conflicts, and in particular, the problem of tragedy, which Dabrowski found in his practice to be correlated with the real development of man, increasing his subtlety, empathy, and creativity. Issues arising from internal conflicts, such as tragedy, receive little attention in American schools and, in keeping with behavioral psychologists, get, quote, treated, end quote, and vanish. What also vanishes is the capacity for future individual development. Sadness, for example, is regarded as negative. Yet in their highest forms, both sadness and conflict are recurrent themes in creative, imaginative works of art and poetry. Dabrowski felt that Americans disregard tragedy and drama in the arts and in everyday life, when it is precisely the tragic element of life that makes these things great. This is evidenced in individuals' need to have movies and stories with happy endings. So, yeah, I, I think uh, there is absolutely nothing in, uh, in most people's education in the U.S., primary education, uh, to prepare them for uh, feeling sad about something, uh, recognizing the tragedy inherent in life, and and learning about the inner resources that one can cultivate and nurture in order to deal with them. And that's another thing that we're seeing here in uh, SJW culture, to be sure. You know, uh, you you discussed uh, humility. How this uh, the theory of positive disintegration really gives you humility, and I was. I I was really particularly struck when I was reading, preparing for the show, and just you know, just over the course of of life, uh, you read history and you read uh, the lives of great men and women, and when you compare yourself to them, you know, objectively, you know, when you look at the things that have been accomplished by some people by the age of twenty, um, yeah, you know, and then you look at the lives of great leaders, great politicians, great scientists, great engineers, and you compare yourself to them. I mean. Humility is the only thing that you can really, that's, that's one major lesson that you learn um, that, you know, that really, it slows everything down. You know, I think that for, uh, you know, as, as fast as, as we live and as hard as so many people work, um, you know, that's just that gratitude and humility um, as, as ways of, of, of just like a, a salve, like a balm or something to place on on your you know your um, your overworked uh, soul, uh, just to, to know that like this is a long 
long path. This is a long pathway. And, you know, sometimes the, the richest things that we gain are, like Dabrowski would say, probably just the experience of that multi-levelness that Harrison was discussing in terms of, you know, you look inside and you can distinguish between the high and the low, and you can see the high. When you learn something new uh, internally, and you understand it, um, you know, that these are some of the, the, the rich fruits that you get from this, uh, this kind of learning, this kind of teaching that, like you said, uh, Elon, that most people, you know, you're, you're are generally deprived of. I mean, in, in the education system, that's, that's pretty obvious. You know, if you think about the institutional pressures that the educational system is under in order to produce workers, to produce soldiers, you know, not to produce enlightened sages or, you know, or anything like that. You know, if anybody comes out of there an enlightened sage, then, you know, they, there was an accident on the, on the education's part, on the system's part. But, but yes, I think um, like uh, just as an example of the multi-levelness that you brought up, Harrison, in regards to these SJWs uh, and uh, those who could actually see the NPC-ness of the ideology that was being fostered on them. I think there's, there's no more evidence than that and then in the walk away movement and this the sheer number of people who must have had some sort of internal dissonance, that cognitive dissonance that occurred where all of a sudden it's like, this is, no, no, this isn't, this isn't what I want. This, these emotions, I, you know, the, the rage and the hatred and the anger and all of these, all of these emotions are not, not okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Not okay. <laughs> Just had to throw that in there. <laughs> Scary. I'm literally shaking, <laughs> but yeah, they, they, you know, you had, they had to make a choice. Mm-hmm. Well, I just uh, I want to read one other thing from this article that I talked about at the beginning of the show, kind of just a non sequitur, but um, it was interesting to me because <clears throat> in this article they're talking about, like I mentioned already, the other theories of inner experience and consciousness, and um, so the theories about what people actually experience, and then how this study kind of um, doesn't support those theories. So, for instance, they write in the section on unsymbolized thinking, this would be the thoughts that you have without verbalizing them. Um, they say, despite its high frequency, many people, including many professional students of consciousness, believe that unsymbolized thinking is impossible. So it's just one sentence, but, um, and there's another one I'll read on the, the phenomenon of inner seeing. But this one, just think about that for a second. So, a lot of you know big thinkers in and uh, you know professional students of consciousness believe that unsymbolized thinking is impossible. So what would it take for, like you know, a scholar of conscious of consciousness, you know, a professor, you know, a, th a theorist, to actually not believe that unsymbolized thinking is possible? It's like that must mean that these people have never consciously been aware of unsymbolized thought in their own minds. That's kind of a disturbing thought in and of itself, given that, like this paper points out, in unsymbolized thinking is actually pretty common. But if you thought that was strange, then uh, wait for this one. Uh, next paragraph on inner seeing. Controversy about the nature of, experience, of the experience of mental images, which we call inner seeing, has also existed since the beginning of psychology. In about 1870, Sir Francis Galton asked his friends in the scientific world to, quote, Think of some definite object. Suppose it is your breakfast table as you sat down to it this morning, and consider carefully the picture that arises before your mind's eye. To my astonishment, 
I found that the great majority of the men of science protested that mental imagery was unknown to them, and they looked on me as fanciful and fantastic in supposing that the words mental imagery really expressed what I believed everybody supposed them to mean. End of quote. However, Galton posed the same question to persons in general society, or when he did this, he found different results. Quote, Many declared that they habitually saw mental imagery and that it was perfectly distinct to them and full of color. End quote. These conversations led Galton to present an open-ended questionnaire about imagery to hundreds of men, women, and children, including many notable scientists. On that basis, Galton concluded that there were substantial individual differences in the ability to form mental images. The present study comports well with Galton's observations. So can you imagine that, sitting in front of a group of scientists and asking them to visualize their breakfast table in their mind, and they're being like, impossible. I cannot conceive of my breakfast table in my mind. That is preposterous. It's like, uh, <laughs> it makes you kind of scratch your head. It's like, these people are scientists? You know, they're supposed to be smart, and they can't visualize? Like, uh, maybe they're not so smart. Maybe. Or uh, they were resistant to the question to begin with <laughs> because it suggested something uh, non-material about, uh, about the reality of experience uh, in their materialist mind because it, it sounds no. so implausible. I don't know which one is worse. <laughs> no, no, because I mean, they would, they would accept that you, or I, I, I'm pretty confident that they'd accept that, you, that they would have inner speech, you know, that, that they would read with their mouths closed. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's kind of, uh, well, I, I think that there, would, there might be multiple explanations, but one of them would be like this study shows, that some people actually do not experience any inner imagery. And like uh, Lobachevsky pointed out in Ponderology in his discussion of frontal characteropathy, so people with damage to the frontal regions of their brain, um, the, way the way Lobachevsky d describes it, that the the like the cytoarchitecture, the way in which the, like the neurons at the front of the brain are constructed are very similar to the to the the, the neurons in your visual cortex, like at the back of your brain. And um, for that reason, he, he kind of makes a link. I don't know if it's scientifically accepted or not, but between those two faculties. And so that when you have frontal brain damage, it diminishes your ability to visualize and to hold various objects within your mental space and manipulate them. So, I mean, that's what you do when you're solving a problem. Like if you close your eyes and imagine three objects and you remove one of them, well, how many do you have? Like two. I mean, I think that's how... At least children who have the ability to visualize would um, like learn some basic mathematics is by visualizing objects and you know manipulating them in order to figure things out. And that's how like um, well, I mean, I'm just repeating basically what this guy says that it's it's a very common experience. And it like to people who experience it, it it's it's kind of like colorblindness. You look at people who can't, and you're like, wow, it's like that's kind of weird. Um, because it's just second nature to, to anyone who can, you know, visualize. And so it just makes me wonder, like, for, for people who can't, when they hear about, like, um, you know, magicians doing card tricks who can create, like, an entire room in their mind where each object represents one card, and, like, they take objects off tables in order to remember which card has been, you know, like, taken out of the deck, 
and to, to realize to figure out which cards are still left they look at the room in their mind and which objects are still on the tables it's like well that that's a remarkable degree of well and you can learn to do it but it's a remarkable degree of of visualization to, to be able to keep a uh, a consistent and uh, like stable environment where you remove one object in your mind and it stays removed you know as opposed to you know going back into the room and you know everything's not where you left it i mean that's how mine that's how my mind works <laughs> but yeah. uh so um but there are people that don't experience this so i'd presume that at least some of those those scientists had no experience of inner like visualization and uh and of course because they're scientists and because they're egotists because most scientists become egotists because they're professionals um you know they were like you said like just insulted at the question it's like oh that's preposterous to think that you can visualize things in your mind <laughs> ridiculous notion which yeah <laughs> starting to sound like alice in wonderland as soon as you get into the the intricacies of consciousness you're in the alice in wonderland world well maybe uh maybe inner visualization is another way of uh, saying imagination, yeah. uh, which, which is also uh, a kind of um, traitor or inner experience that uh, Dabrowski points out is is lacking uh, among some people in large amounts. Um, and imagination can take many forms. Uh, it it is the it it can be the visualization of all kinds of probable events that one's actions and thinking. Um, you know, might lead to, uh, and it's in the exercise of of a constructive imagination and 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 becoming your own kind of, uh, you know, self psychologist um, that we that we can do a good deal of um, thinking ahead and being constructive and and at least acting in a way that uh, someone on a higher level of integration might. Um, so just a just a kind of a uh, like I can't imagine you know people not having an imagination mm -hmm. uh, and and being at least able to uh, foresee a possible negative outcome of of their actions, uh, which seems to me to be one of the the huge blind spots among SJWs and and other uh, politically ideologically possessed uh, groups of individuals. Uh, succumb to uh, you know you, you see the same thing with Zionists in Israel it's like how can they not see how their behavior might lead to their own uh, their own demise or, or injury how can they be how can they lack insight to such a to such a great extent um, and the answer is at least part of the answer is is that they lack imagination um, that's tied to anything uh, that that is connected to reality. Uh, so if you say that, then you say they're not connected to reality. They're in their own bubble. They're in their own. Um, you know, they've they've they're stuck effectively in this uh, primary uh, integration mode um, and are helpless to do anything but stay in it and dig their heels in. 
But yeah, you mentioned the imagination uh, being one of the, the th one of the traits that, that give you a developmental potential. And another one that I'm thinking of is emotions and emotional, uh, what Debrasi calls emotional overexcitabilities. Um, and specifically humor, the, the fact that the left are these SJ, these NPCs are so bad at memeing. They can't write a meme to save their life. They can't laugh. They just, they can't laugh at things that are to a lot of people legitimately funny, like a higher emotional, you know, very witty, and you know, conveys a lot of information like this NPC meme has. Um, but I did remember seeing one SJW NPC meme uh, not too long ago that that told me a lot about what was at the heart of you know of, of the whole. Um, this, this whole movement, and they thought it would be funny. They thought it, you know, it would be really, uh, it would really be pretty brutal and and awesome to take the the statue of uh, Perseus holding the head of Medusa, uh, you know, with the you know he beheaded the mm -hmm. the Gorgon, and reverse it so it's Medusa with snakes in her hair holding the head of Perseus, and it says something like you know just be glad that women only want um, half and not revenge. And and I was looking at it, and I'm like, the, the, what? <laughs> I mean, that real, you want Medusa, the, the incarnation of evil and lies and death, to be your, uh, you know, your spokesman to the world, your spokeswoman. I'm sorry, spokesperson Spokes to the world, spokespeople. Um, and and then when the NPC thing came out and they reacted with such horror, I couldn't help but think back yeah. to that meme because I'm like, oh, this is Perseus with the mirror sh uh, showing the reflection back to Medusa. Mm -hmm. And poof, the yep. outrage, mm -hmm. looking at their own reflection, completely just annihilated them. Right. They were obliterated. It, it is one of the most interesting, it's probably, probably my favorite development in 2018. Yep. Because there's just so much to it. One, one being, okay, the, the, the premise is that all these NPCs just repeat the same thing. They basically run programs. And that's what a lot of the memes are. They show like programming language, like, you yeah. know, if this, then this. And, and so the, the idea is that they're all the same. They all repeat the same talking points. And then in the reaction to that, what have all of the people that have been triggered by this been saying? That they've all been using the same word, dehumanizing. Dehumanizing, dehumanizing. This is dehuman, dehumanizing. This is dehumanizing. And it's just over and over and over and over. And they're all saying the same thing, basically proving the meme correct in their own reaction to it. But then there's a, another angle to it as well. And that is the total lack of self-insight because these people have been dehumanizing their enemies for this whole time. And that's why the, the, that's why the meme works so well because anyone they don't like is a Russian bot or a you know a Kremlin troll or a Nazi, a, a, a Nazi, a fascist, a deplorable. Like and and some so some of the responses to these memes are like, if you like this, then you're a Nazi. It's like if you if you see people posting this, then they're a fascist. It's like how is that not dehumanizing? Well, it, well, it is. That's why that's why it's funny because like you said they're getting the mirror held up into their face and and they they can't even see the reflection like it because it's so disturbing maybe uh, on some like unconscious level that they can't consciously accept it because that would be to to realize that they're wrong and that's one of the thing about primary integration is that you like primary when when you're integrate when you're in an integrated state the there's like a um there's like an evolutionary law going on of self-preservation where you, you 
your your consciousness, your mind, your being will protect that integration from anything that will disturb it. So any possibly disintegrative um, catalysts or you know materials will be rejected and not assimilated into the, into your structure, the structure of your personality, uh, the structure of your your inner self, because it would cause pain, it would cause discomfort, it would cause disintegration. So there's a an integrated person has a like a, a motivated reason for not accepting. Um, like harsh truths because they are disturbing. So they can't even, they can't consciously acknowledge that the, the meme is correct because that would mean accepting that they are wrong and people don't like accepting that they are wrong, like as a rule in general. And so it, so it works on every level and that's, it's beautiful. Like even if it's ugly, like the, the, like the NPC guy, like the gray face is just like so ugly, but, um, but it's, but then so are, so are they. Yeah. On the inside. Well, the, and the greatest thing is that the the NPC memes can also adopt the exact same language to criticize exact, themselves, and they have, and they have, and it's a work of genius. It, it, they've taken meme to a work of art at this point. This is Banksy political art on Twitter and Facebook. Mm, yeah, beautiful. Well, is there anything else we want to say today on these subjects? Mm. We've got uh, five seconds for someone to say yes or no. Four. Okay, so I think that's a three, two, one. Is that a no? That's a no. Okay. It is. Well, we will be returning to positive disintegration in another show in the future. Hopefully the new new future, (laughs) the the near future, because uh, it's it's a great topic and I love it as people who know me know. But that is for another time. Yes, so, we haven't. We've barely even scratched the yeah, scratched the surface of that, it. That's what I wanted to say too. Like you know, if you could put like all the basics, all the fundamentals of of Dabrowski's theory into like a hundred pages, we've covered like maybe a half a page or yeah. a page at most. So, um, but you got to start somewhere. Got to start somewhere. And we had to talk about NPCs. Yes. So thanks for tuning in, all you fellow NPCs and people who want <laughs> not to be NPCs, people who know they're NPCs and wish not to be NPCs. Oh, man. Yeah, you're uh, you're great people. So thanks for tuning in, and we will see you next week. Tune in tomorrow for Newsreel. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Take care.